Hi, my name is Branken Lodick, and you are listening to the Talking Architecture and Design podcast, brought to you from the Architecture and Design Network. Today, I am delighted to bring you the second of our five podcasts in our 2022 commercial design series, proudly brought to you in association with StormTech. An Australian success story, StormTech are the original linear drain inventors currently used worldwide. StormTech's skilled specialists work closely with specifiers, architects and builders to offer tailored drainage solutions, free site measures, bespoke drawings and plans for customised drainage designs for all Australian commercial projects. Their products are watermark certified and they are the only drainage manufacturer worldwide to achieve both gold and platinum green tag certifications. And sustainability is at the core of their business. Their full product range is available in a range of powder-coated colours and electroplated finishes to suit any trend and fashion. Find out more by visiting www.stormtech.com.au. Okay, so in today's podcast, we talk with the wonderful Ruth McKenzie about commercial architecture and commercial design and sustainability in the commercial space. I hope you all enjoyed the podcast. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic, and today we have with us Ruth McKenzie. Ruth McKenzie established North by North Interior Architecture in early 2020, specialising in sustainable commercial fit-outs and small-scale residential. She is a registered architect in New South Wales and Ireland, has worked as a design journalist for national newspapers and is experienced in a number of project typologies from education all the way up to aged care. She holds a Master's in Sustainability from the University of Sydney and has a particular interest in the adaptation of existing buildings. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Ruth McKenzie. Thanks, Franco. I'm delighted to be here and thank you for asking me. Quite all right. Who would know by that accent that you're from Ireland, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was going to say that I I actually wore my green striped shirt just because you're from Ireland. Actually, Oh, thanks. That makes me feel at home. So uh, thanks for the effort. (laughs) I'm wearing blue, so I feel like a traitor. No, that's okay. It's okay. Um, We can change these things. All right. So um, how... Look, we're going to be talking about sustainability in the modern commercial space, rather, and the path towards zero net emissions, which is really interesting with your, you know, your interest in adaptation of existing buildings, because that's that's a big, mm. that's actually very important for for net zero. But how do you define net zero for a building? Yeah, Franco, I think that's one of the questions that really needs a clear, concise answer, not just here, and just, but everywhere. I think everybody has gone off and made their own definitions about what they think a net zero building is. What is a net zero building in terms of energy? What is a net zero carbon building? Um, there's just a multitude of ways to define this. Um, you could say that a net uh, our zero energy building is a building with net zero energy consumption. But then you could also go into it's a, um, a zero carbon building, 
And what does that mean? That means, I suppose, that the building uses renewable sources of energy, that its um, design encompasses its whole carbon life cycle, that its materials were carefully chosen, that its end of life cycle is carefully considered. Um, so, yeah, I think you've opened just a can of worms there. What is... <laughs> it's, it's something that because there's so many different organizations working in this space and there's uh, every country in the world, I suppose, is invested in what is zero energy um, and how to provide that as just one definition is so difficult. Um, and who, yeah. <laughs> Let's, I suppose I provided you a non-answer. No, no, actually, that, that's a perfect answer because that is part of the problem. Is like, like you're someone who's got an MA in, in sustainability. You're an architect. Yeah. Um, you work in the field, mm-hmm. and it's not that you're having trouble defining it. You're having trouble actually confining it <laughs> into. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like now, imagine if you're a politician. <laughs> they're in the news these days a lot. Um, you know, if if you're having the you know the struggle session. It must be hard for those who aren't in the field, yeah? Yeah, oh, completely. And, you know, there's there's different energy rating systems. There's different um, legislation around it. And some of it is necessary and some of it is voluntary. So what you, what you have is kind of this almost like a maze of how to deliver something. Um, there's a BCA which provides um, is it Section J for energy efficiency, but doesn't you know encompass the whole of building. You know, doesn't go into um, you know what is the air quality like for the inhabitants, and it's so broad um, that it's just this kind of slippery thing that just evolves continuously. Um, should there be one rating system? Hopefully. <laughs> um, I, I know that Neighbours is um, introducing something new and there's um, incentives to apply for um, a neighbor certificate. Um, but I, I think I was actually just reading it today. So um, it's if you receive a four-star Neighbours rating, you can automatically get a voluntary carbon offset. I'm not entirely sure where they're going with this. But um, again, again, I think it needs to go to a, a, an almost you know federal level where the government says, this is what we want to achieve. This is the one certification process. But obviously, this is incredibly difficult to do. Nice segue into the election there, uh, Ruth. I was, going to, I was going to say, though, that you talk about opening a can of worms. I mean, I think you've just opened up a whole supermarket worth of cans of worms. Yeah. What are some of the steps we need to do now to achieve net zero carbon for buildings? I mean, I suppose first and foremost is, you know, design more efficient buildings mm-hmm. would be one. Um, I suppose look at some of the circular economy principles, how to reuse existing material and design new buildings to be reusable. Um, 
utilize renewable energies and low carbon materials. Yeah, and I, I think that utilizing low carbon materials, that's obviously uh, an amazing thing. And uh, renewable energies, yes. Um, but is it the only answer? I'm not sure. Um, neutralizing residual carbon emissions, hard to do. So what, what we might do is like, if you look at kind of the triangle, you could say that maybe the best thing is to build nothing. Okay. You know, you build nothing, you know, you just re repurpose and refurbish. You build as little as you can, you know, just build to that need, build clever. So what does that mean? I suppose utilize uh, prefabrication where you can, utilize low carbon materials, utilize materials that could be taken down and reused. Um, and try to minimize waste because building creates so much waste. It's incredible how much construction creates. And especially when we look at how much or how many buildings are demolished just to be replaced by something new. And is that always the right answer? Um, I think, you know, there's an argument that says, oh, it's much cheaper, it's more efficient to demolish and build new. But is that the best approach? Oh, you're an architect close to my heart, Ruth. That is a very, very good answer. But it is also very, very similar to what the American filmmaker Michael Moore said, you know, when it comes to, do we really need to build so much and why don't we reuse yeah. stuff? And, and at the end of the day, you know, if you really want to be. I know, because I think, um, I think what something that's really challenged our thinking recently is obviously COVID and yeah. what that did to, as an example, the city of Sydney and the CBD. So overnight, the CBD, which is made up of tall office buildings, beautiful buildings, expensive buildings, buildings owned by funds, buildings that uh, people have invested a lot of time, money and effort into. And they became ghost towns. So, you know, mm -hmm. and people adapted and they worked in different localities. People moved and the nature of work became different. Now there's a push back into the city. So, but what, what does that actually mean for the buildings within that city? Um, does it mean that they are always going to be office buildings or can we start to think about them in a different way? If they're not fully utilized as office buildings, what could they become? Could they become something that has a multitude of uses? Um, obviously, Sydney has a massive housing affordability issue. And when everybody moved out of the CBD, it became a ghost town. But what if it was just a real mix, an integrated mix within a building of um, housing and office space you know is there the opportunity and the will and the I suppose resources to actually look at these buildings and say you know let's let's have this mix obviously there would be a multitude of issues with BCA regs and everything but as a high level that's might be an interesting thing to look at dare I say more of a European model um, God forbid that we should we should we should we should um copy the those um you know people in the northern hemisphere but would, would that work better well i don't know i mean obviously australia is its own country and it 
has its own culture. Um, in Europe, I suppose the city has developed differently over a long period of time. And cities, I suppose, are quite vibrant streets. Now, Sydney is different in that it's got its different precincts and people tend to um, I don't have their suburb. And that suburb is almost their own little city and that's where they socialise and meet and they just go into the CBD for work. But, um, yeah, I, I suppose it's just something that may evolve from uh, this unfortunate pandemic that we had or still have. Point. Do you think there are incentives we could use for both developers and designers um, to perhaps reach something more of a, dare I say, a more multifunctional CBD in a multifunctional city? Yeah, look, um, I absolutely think there could be incentives. Um, I think when you look at something like the CBD and buildings there, obviously there's a lot of stakeholders yeah. there. Um, and I know I've kind of kept going back to the government, but uh, when it's something that comes with that much um, investment, there needs to be a really big force behind it. And, um, you know, it can't be just little incentives. You know, there has to be like this golden egg, I suppose. Um, and with designers, I think designers ultimately want the best outcome. And I don't think there's a designer out there that will say, actually, I don't care about um the energy consumption of the building or what it looks like or how people operate in it. But I think, you know, when, when you're on the other side, when you're paying for the building um, and when you're employing people to deliver the building, there's a lot of different kind of pushes and pulls there that um, it's hard to see, you know, that one incentive that would deliver, deliver on those aspects. But yes, Absolutely, there should be incentives. Mm. Okay, let's talk about whole life cycle carbon. And, and what is the whole life cycle carbon approach to achieving net, car, net zero carbon rubber buildings um, that ensures all sources of emissions, including embodied carbon, are addressed? Because this is where we're going, isn't it? We're going from, from what I understand it, we're going from operational carbon to more embodied mm -hmm. carbon, aren't we? That's the whole yeah. point. I mean, once we start to look at the building life cycle, so the building will start, you know, in the design stage, new builds start in the, in the design stage and then move into the operational stage. So um, some of the, in terms of the whole of life carbon, you might start with the upfront carbon aspects of the building design. So that might be, um, the material choice, um, how the uh, buildings are transported, um, how are the windows manufactured, you know, what is the embodied energy of the aluminium frames in the windows or the steel or the concrete or the um, preferably uh, timber. Um, and that, I suppose that's addressed during the construction process, but uh, then during this operational lifetime, there's the embodied carbon of that aspect as well. So um, what happens when you have to repair the building, maintain the building? 
Um, and then you come to the end of the life of the building and what happens then? So it's about how that building is taken down, how it um, can be reused, and then the end of life, past the end of life, is how it comes back into that circular economy. So I think uh, once you start um, a building, it's about that entire process, which is incredibly complex, as you can imagine. And I think one of the key issues would be extracting a lot of data, especially during the day-to-day -day operation of the building. I think in the early design stage, I mean, like, it's kind of, I was almost going to use a management phrase of low-hanging fruit. My <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> I'm it, sorry. It, it, next, that. next thing you know, you're going to use the word symbiosis. My God. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose, you know, when you're at that early design stage, it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the key points, you know, it's that at that point you can really pull back on um, the carbon emissions of the building. But it's during that operational stage um, is, I think, quite difficult to extract what the carbon emissions are during that stage. And it comes down to the data availability of that building over its lifetime. So, okay, let's talk about examples. I mean, what are some good, I guess, recent examples? Well, they don't have to be that recent, but of net zero carbon buildings that you know? Uh, look, I think that um, there's a number of international architects that are doing some great work, buildings mm -hmm. uh, like Bradley, Snowheta. But one thing that has really caught my attention is that in the UK, in York, um, they're moving being swiftly to deliver over 600 passive houses wow. um, across eight sites. And the interesting thing about this is that it is all social housing. It is um, social housing that will deliver a housing product for people that need it, that requires less energy to run, that's um, equitable, I suppose that provides, um, you know, a sound environment, good air quality for tenants with, without them having to pay through the nose from it or without them having to move from where their jobs are, from their family or other items. And I think that just really kind of resonated with me when I read that um, Clever Moore came out about the public housing and Redfern and how the entire social housing um, component of that site will um, has been either reduced to a minimal amount and uh, I think was it 30 percent down from 40 um, I'm not sure exactly but um, it just seems to be a pity that in other countries there is a real push to deliver something of quality for social housing whereas maybe it would be a great idea to look at social housing as something that should be equitable and that when we're reviewing the carbon um, or net zero carbon buildings that people aren't left behind that when energy prices go up 
but it doesn't become something that, well, I live in a, a, a zero carbon building because I can afford it. Okay. It should be something that's across the board and that's accepted and that, um, you know, I'm not even talking about social housing. I, I think even going into the generic house, the project home, but that should also be um, energy efficient as possible. That should aim for a zero carbon. Um, it's a it's a difficult one because obviously there would be uh, a relationship to cost <laughs> that you wouldn't want to have passed on to the consumer, but maybe... Maybe there's an answer, Branko. What do you think? Well, it's funny because the, uh, so I'm sorry, so I'm going to ask you, but I'm I'm going to ask you an answer at the same time. Um, is there then perhaps a need for more legislation? I mean, and what? And, and if so, which I think we both know the answer there. But if so, why isn't it forthcoming? Well. I think there was that design and place states um, uh, set that was meant to come out but was scrapped due to, um, I think, pressure from certain sectors. Um, I think there needs to be buy-in from everyone, from uh, the small developers due to the large, but also just the average person in to say that this is a good thing and this is what we need to do in order to fulfill, um, I suppose, or to meet the Paris Agreement, um, to look at the world in its totality and just say, this is my part to play. There just seems to be an emphasis kind of more on the short-term quick fixes rather than the long-term impacts. yeah, I was. I, I personally was disappointed that the um, design in place set was scrapped um, because it would have been um, an interesting road to take. I think it certainly would have changed things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I found that well. Yeah, I found that annoying. I think a lot of architects found it a lot more than just annoying, but is really interesting. Um, knowing. Um, donations to political parties by anyone (laughs) it's so difficult because you can see you can see different points of views but we are all in this together yeah and the amount of emissions that new buildings um carbon emissions associated with new buildings is huge you know it's up to 40 percent of all emissions and to not tackle that is just remiss of everybody. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We are indebted to the wonderful people over at StormTech whose sponsorship of the 2022 Commercial Design Series makes all this possible. StormTech are proudly Australian inventors, manufacturers and are 100% Australian made and owned for over 30 years. All of StormTech's product range is Watermark Certified, which is vitally important for building insurance. Sustainability is also one of the most important aspects of StormTech's culture. In fact, they take it so seriously, they are the only drainage manufacturer worldwide to achieve gold and platinum green tag certifications. StormTech's skilled specialist work 
closely with specialised architects and builders to offer tailored drainage solutions, including bespoke drawings and plans for customised drainage designs for all Australian environments. In addition, they also offer a free on-site measurement service. So if you want to find out more, go to www.stormtech.com.au. And now it's back to the show. Now to my favourite subject. Adaptive reuse. No, I really, I really think like, <laughs> I think it's so under undercooked in this country. It's 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 annoying. I mean, you being from Ireland, I'm sure you've seen one or two old buildings that have been reused. I mean, yes, we've done it here too. Yeah, I, I yeah. guess. But I don't think there's the incentive to for it to be the first port of call. It's it's maybe something that. No. It's so funny. And, I, and it's interesting that you bring up um, being from Ireland because in Ireland you, you don't tend to see um, houses being torn down to be rebuilt. And I was so surprised when I came here to actually see that every every second house that was a new build had literally just torn down what was there before. Now, I'm sure that there is reasons behind it because some of the construction would have been you know single leaf wouldn't have performed there's costs involved um but yeah it was um completely completely different to what i had practiced previously you know that this was something completely new that you might just demolish as the first call and if you didn't get it through council as a demolition you go back for it <laughs> For an asthma. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, do you think then that if we increase that adaptive reuse, do you think that'd be one? I mean, look, let's face it, the building that you're in now is the most sustainable one. Um, do you think then that that'd be one way of, of achieving net zero for buildings quicker? Like there's pluses and minuses to that. I mean, you can look at an existing building, but there will be a huge amount of upgrades that would need to be done. So, you know, if it was a tall building, let's say you had to replace the glazing. So you're replacing the glazing, the embodied energy of that, or what kind of environment does it provide at present? So I suppose there's no real right answer, but I think that there is less of an acceptance of the approach that the first point of call should be, can I reuse the building? Or can I adapt the building rather than I will build a new building? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the first step in assessing whether you need a new build is to have a feasibility study on can I adapt what I have? In a lot of cases, I think you can, but obviously it's not the one right answer. You run North by North Architecture. I've noticed your commercial designs kind of mimic your residential ones. Um, that's basically in terms of the generous use of light and space. Do you think that design is perhaps then the most, possibly the most important tool we have when it comes in, in, in the toolbox to lower the amount of carbon from our buildings? And, and do you think that, des- that our approach to design needs to be taken differently in terms of um, how we design and, and, in, ter- and, in, and in terms of um, how we approved designs do you think design is something that we really should be looking at more so than anything else how we structure our fees you know would there be if if there was 
um, some sort of uh, a financial product that associated with house finance that consultants were paid upfront, but not by the owner, let's say, because that upfront expense for the average person to pay a consultant for a residential project is huge, you know, and you're dealing with people's, I suppose, hopes and dreams. But if it was grouped together as a mortgage, it may be a different aspect. But I'm, I'm kind of diverting from the point of this. Um, but I think, like, you know, design is one tool. And it is a tool and any building comes down to a team effort. Mm -hmm. So that is, um, it comes down to the architectural designer, the mechanical design, um, the structural design. Um, and everybody has to work together. Um, every building is different. So um, design is one aspect, then there's the team. But underpinning that, there has to be this kind of really strong um, commitment to reducing carbon emissions and that needs to come from a real really clear um, path and that needs to be I suppose defined clearly by by, legi by legislation and it needs to be mandated in that way and once you have that framework that kind of enables the design team to I suppose work together to deliver something that would you know stand for generations. Interesting you mentioned legislation again and I think <laughs> no no it's actually quite important I think you're right but I think do you think then it should be legislated that we have an architect on every rebuild? I kind of you know I've thought about this and what would that mean I mean would it mean this like utopian city or would it mean a city of white elephants like there, <laughs> there's um i mean i think i think if you were to mandate that architects needed to be engaged for every project um there there would need to be some sort of reassessment of how architects charge um at the moment it's so opaque for so many people um, that it's difficult to even consider, I think. Um, I do think that architects have a lot to offer. I also think that as a profession, though, we need to um, start to review our, I suppose, overall place um, in this society and what we can do to drive change in a positive way. So on that point, do you think, our, our, from a societal point of view, do you think our approach to net zero is too fragmented? And, and do we focus too much on certain sectors while, while not enough on others? Is it that, do you think that that's, would be a fair statement? I, I definitely think that um, it's fragmented. Um, buildings and construction um, does have an enormous amount of emissions associated with it. You know, you know, obviously we look at buildings, but do we also look at infrastructure when we're considering zero carbon emissions? And, um, and I know I'm going back to COVID, but that's really challenged for me, um, the nature of a city as a destination. Okay. And 
and what that actually means for infrastructure and the obviously the carbon emissions associated with infrastructure. In Australia, we rely heavily on coal as an energy source. Um, and I know that there is a push to um, really look at solar and renewable energies, but I, I don't know if it should be disregarded that Australia also has one of the world's, uh, it's one of the world's biggest source of uranium. Um, and as a real tool to drive down carbon emissions, should Australia be looking at nuclear as an energy source? I mean, that's, that's huge. Um, it's huge potential. Um, whereas solar, it's fantastic. Obviously, this country has so much sun. Um, but will it meet the requirements of the population? And I think we have to be honest and say that I'm not sure. Yeah. Not, you know, obviously, I'm not an expert in that area, but um, there's uh, Australia has a huge demand on energy. Its population is only getting bigger. Um, what does that mean for carbon emissions? So I think it's great. I mean, I'll, I'll stick in my little area of, of buildings and adaptive reuse, but the question is obviously much, much bigger than that. That in itself, what you said about the uranium is a very interesting interesting point and um, it's something that's actually worthwhile of a whole of an entire podcast. Um, if you look at the, the whole history of how uranium went in this country, and then and the industry's basically been closed down, okay? We had, a nuclear, we had a uranium industry that was pretty much world's best-ish in terms of safety and, and whatnot, environmental yeah. issues, um, highly paid. We've closed it down. We close it, you know, we don't, don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, so all our customers went to Canada, Congo, Kazakhstan, South Africa, yada, yada, yada. And in the time, the number of nuclear-armed countries has gone up by from five to nine. In that time, the number of nuclear reactors, I think, has doubled or something, some yeah. number. Um, so we didn't actually achieve anything except we shunted our customers off to other people. But that is definitely for another podcast. Overall, do you think that COVID has changed the way we design commercial space um and if so how i think COVID is still you know change how we design commercial space um i think that the impacts of COVID are still being felt um i i suppose it's just such an evolving space i mean uh we the office was obviously moving towards hot desking do you want a hot desk now <laughs> <laughs> um, or do you want to go back into your nice 1960s cubicle, you know, on your own? Um, <laughs> do you want to be sharing coffee? Do you want to be meeting at the water cooler and just going into the bathrooms or having that like one kitchen where you have a, a great like up close chat with your office worker? Or do you want a bit of distance? Yeah. You know, it's it's something that we suppose haven't had to address before and the last pandemic as well is something to be seen you know there's yep. you know 
we've had COVID, we have COVID, that's had a massive, incredible impact across the world and has, you know, devastated a number of families and um, changed how we um, operate um, in businesses, at home, in schools. Um, and yeah, I think that the impacts of COVID will be felt on design and how we want to work. Um, it's opened up opportunities for people who don't want to work in a traditional office environment and made it, in some ways, more family friendly. You know, it's become more accepted to work from home. It's become accepted that you may want to spend time with your children, that you don't want to spend 12 hours a day in an office with your office friends and then <laughs> grab a bus home. Um, but yeah, it's just... Um, it's just something that I think will be felt for years to come. It's become expected for your dog or cat to walk across your yeah. Zoom <laughs> with your boss. Yes. Yeah. I know, which is great, you know. And it's great that, you know, people are all, you know, that everybody's become a bit more humane, I suppose, in terms of how you work and what you want to achieve with your time and that your time isn't just dedicated to your job. What is your favourite or best design commercial space as well? God, there's so many. Honestly, Frank, I don't, I don't think I can answer that. Really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, there's places that just strike me and I'm just like, oh, this is such a nice space, you know. Um like I love like the adaptive reuse of the wharfs. I was just in that uh, Willamalu Wharf last night, actually. You know, the uh, one with the restaurants on the side and then the hotel. And that's just, it's a great space. Um, the the wharf stand at um, where the dance theatre is in Sydney. Again, like a great adaptive reuse. Um I know Australian architects and interior designers are amazing in terms of how they uh, reappropriate spaces. And um, honestly, I think they're world world class in terms of uh, commercial space design. And that kind of hits me a lot, actually. Mm, interesting. Ruth McKenzie, founder of North by North Interior Architecture. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks, Franco. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. This has been Branko Melodic, and thank you very much for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you from the Architecture and Design Network. Thank you once again today to Ruth McKenzie and Stormtech, proud sponsors of our 2022 commercial design series. Be sure to check them out at stormtech.com.au. You could also head over to architectureanddesign.com.au for all the latest news, views, projects, people, and much, much more. See you next time.